Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Do you ever meet someone out in the world, you hear what they have to say, and you think to yourself, I have to understand this person. I need to know their story. I get this feeling a lot, actually. It's sort of the nature of doing this podcast. I'm always searching for people like that. But of all the people that I've met over the course of making this podcast, Jesse was the person who stuck out the most. My name's Jesse. I'm from Hubei province. It's a small city named Ezhou, kind of uh, an hour's drive from Wuhan, the capital city of this province. So Jesse's from a smaller city in Hubei called Ezhou which is close to Wuhan, but we're not talking about the coronavirus today. I interviewed Jesse long before the coronavirus hit. I go to this group that meets every Wednesday here in Shanghai called Curious Minds. It's a group made up mostly of Chinese folks. The sort of mission statement of the group is that we want to talk about philosophical issues and broad social ideas and problems. It's a bunch of weirdos that get together and just discuss stuff that they find interesting. This is where I met Jesse. Okay, let's begin. The first part will be about sex versus gender. Every week, someone from the group has to get up and do a presentation about a specific topic. Back in November, Jesse gave a presentation to our group about gender, and it was definitely one of the most memorable presentations. This group, would you like to be one team? One thing that really caught my attention about Jessie is that she's so unafraid of calling people out. During her presentation, this one guy in the group expressed some pretty retrograde ideas about a woman's place in society. <laughs> and she just kind of tore him down and everybody thought it was hilarious. When you're fixing a car, you, you, you'll only see a, a man in some dirty hands and uh, oil, uh, you know, with oil spots and is painting a car, yeah, you never see a woman wearing that fixing car. What if you see a woman doing that? Okay, what about this? I never seen that. <laughs> this, this gentleman actually represents the green man <laughs> 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 who actually believes that women should be excluded from the working sphere. The other thing about Jessie that just strikes you immediately is the way that she talks. You'll see throughout this episode that she just drops literary illusions all the time. Prometheus was basically hated by God, Zeus, because he said he would like to give fire between civilizations and means. And then that actually goes to a question whether ignorance is a kind of happiness. She's extremely well-read in both Western and Chinese classics. This may seem sort of pretentious, but it's just earnestly who Jessie is. So Jessie's from Hubei. 
That's the province that, again, is now stricken with the coronavirus. But more importantly, she's from the countryside in a small village outside of Uzhou. And for us city dwellers here in China, the countryside has taken on a new, maybe even metaphorical meaning. Yeah, so, so do you think equality is an issue or a question in China right now? And if it is, how serious is it? Like, raise your hand if you think equality is a question, a problem, issue in China. Okay, almost everyone. The same night I met Jesse, right. the topic for our Curious Minds discussion was inequality. So for inequality in China, inevitably, the discussion led to the difference between the city and the country life because of that hard economic divide between the two. And most people in our group seem to have this notion that the countryside people were ignorant but blissful. It's not necessarily means like people from poor areas, they, they are not happier or they are less happier than the rich people. I would say the values, they really value differently. I, I wouldn't say it's bad or, or good, but they're simpler. And I would say, for example, um, when I go to Guizhou, when I went to Guizhou, and um, what they told me is like, they never realized they were poor until the people came to you know Guizhou and supported and says, uh, we're supporting you because you're a poor area. <laughs> I've heard this from a lot of people I've talked to here in China, that there's this idealized, simple, simplified life that exists in the countryside. I think this notion has really been pushed by like vloggers like Li Zixi, who portrays like a very beautiful and simple country lifestyle in China. I'm watching Li Zixi's most viewed video on YouTube. It's got 12 million views. It's about planting cotton. Her production value is really, really good, and it, I mean, from what I understand, she does this with like an assistant, but mostly does it on her own. It's a little hard to believe. I'm really jealous of her sound design, too. It's really good. She is plucking all of the seeds out of the cotton, presumably by herself. I don't know. It's a lot of, a lot of work. Li Zixi is a phenomenon on her own, and she's pretty Lehigh. On a fundamental level, what she's showing us is actually pretty fake. This isn't categorically country life. This is her strange little hermit life in Western China. But I think for many people in the city, this has become the kind of idealized notion of the countryside for people who live in big cities. Actually, if you're thinking about like a thousand years ago, maybe some poor people, when they built up a like mud, like a mud house, they will be extremely happy. And the happiness level, I mean, it might even be higher than today you buy a, like, decent property in Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I say poor doesn't mean you're not happy. Rich doesn't mean you're exactly. happy. Throughout this discussion, I kept noticing that Jesse was really the only one in the room who felt that this was a misrepresentation. That's because she was the only one in the room who actually has firsthand experience. I'm not blaming the outsider's point of view. What I'm blaming is basically that I feel like people are insinuating a kind of romance mm -hmm. or kind of uh, idealism into the countryside. That I'm not happy mm -hmm. about. Right. At Curious Minds, we're all weirdos who have different perspectives. But what differentiates Jesse from the usual crowd, well, she, she's different in a lot of ways, but is that she actually knows what it's like. She's lived in rural China. 
she was born there. Jesse wants to disabuse us of this notion that country life is simple and easy. I guess the major issue is this, okay? A lot of people are advocating a, li- a kind of lifestyle they don't have any say in. You don't even know what it is. And you're actually, you know, promoting this kind of lifestyle to the people who don't have any idea about it either. So what's the point? I don't understand. So those people who basically say that, well, living in the country is way easier, way better. Come on, I think those people are talking about the kind of, you know, country life in the West, in the developed countries, not in China. I don't even know whether they have been to the countryside by themselves. I have been there. I've been to very poor areas. I come from the small villages in China. I grew up in a small village without in-house toilet, without running water. And we live in a kind of adobe house. When it was raining very hard in summer, you know, everywhere, the roof, we had so many leaks. We had to use our basins, you know, to, to carry the water everywhere. Otherwise, we would be flooded. This is the reality of life. What I'm saying is basically right now, this is still, you know, kind of reality for most poor places in China. I don't understand why some people would like to beautify, you know, this picture. Maybe they're just, you know, intoxicating themselves. Chapter 9. Mulan. What's your interest in like the classics like that? Like the Western classic? Why are you so interested in it? Uh, basically, I, I'm, I'm an English teacher mm-hmm. and I think, I think it's kind of interesting for me to trace back to the roots of stuff. You know, all the Western civilization has kind of Greek traditions or Greek origins. That's why I did a lot of reading about the uh, Greek mythology and Greek plays as well. Jesse has this deep interest in mythology. And I think part of that is because mythology, these ideas of fate and an invisible hand guiding you, has been so intertwined with her own life. There's this interesting play named Atreus House, you know, the Greek heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, uh, the, uh, the stories of Agamemnon and Menelaus, their conflicts, the incest kind of family uh, crimes and stuff. I think that's very interesting. Mm. Because that play tell, tells me that basically the sins will never go away. The crimes will never go away unless one day God says so. That's an interesting idea. Another thing is that basically, um, if the sin runs through the family, it's going to repeat every generation. It's not going to disappear. When we talked, Jesse told me a lot about myths and how she believes they sort of related to her life. She doesn't think her family's cursed or anything like that, like the epic heroes, but she sees this repetitive generational trauma that gets passed down. Why does that relate necessarily to your life? That's a very good question. Never thought about this. But if you ask me now, maybe I feel like I I just a lot of time I'm a mother. I'm a single mother. And a lot of times I, I think about the relationship between me and my daughter. Such reflections will actually bring me to the reflection about me and my father and my mother as well. Keep reminding myself that I shouldn't repeat the mistakes that my father has made to me. Like my father has always been absent. He's not a very good one, not a very good example. And I have to frequently tell myself that I shouldn't be like my father. And at the same time, I'm a single mother. So basically for my daughter, you know, this is what I mean by repetition. <laughs> Her father is absent as well. <laughs> and I need to, how, how can I actually make this up? How can I compensate for this kind of absence when my daughter's father is absent? Maybe Jessie also sees her life grounded in mythology because of a nickname that her father gave her. 
Um, everyone called me Mulan in the country. Why? You mean my mother, my my father? Okay, my my father named me Mulan because according to the Chinese astrology, I lacked wood in my life, so I need to find someone who is rich in wood. And then um, one way to make this up is basically, you know, by adding this element into your name. And Mulan, Mu means wood. Mm-hmm. This legend goes back to maybe a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, this this is a like a female lady who, you know, took the place of her father and fought for the father in the battlefield for about ten years, and she came back a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she came back home a hero, and nobody knew that she was actually a she. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a very cool story for me. I think this is a story about obligation, duty, family. Duty, you know, and I think I resemble this lady in some aspects because, you know, in many instances, I took the responsibility of the family. I think Mulan is an apt nickname for Jessie because, as we'll see through her story, she has this strong sense of duty towards her family and this deep respecting loyalty almost to a fault. As we'll see from her story. The real irony is that her father gave her this nickname. Let's start at the beginning with Jesse. Jesse was born in a tiny farming village outside of Ujou. In her life, she's faced more uncertainty than most people. But through all of this uncertainty. There's been this one constant. What's from the time I could remember anything? My father was always away. He would actually use all kinds of excuses of going to town to get some money or something. So her father was absent a lot, and so it was up to Jessie's mom to work their farmland.、Uh, so basically, my mother had to take care of like, you know, huge pieces of land, you know, that should be cultivated by six people. Because back then, the land was distributed according to the family number, the number of the people in the family. Her mom was made to work six plots of land that her family was allotted by the government. So while her mom was working, Jessie, by age six, was essentially responsible for raising her siblings. So I, I was like, you know, five or six, and I was already taking care of three kids.、Mm-hmm. I, I, I bathed them, I fed them, I, I, you know, I took care of them. When I was young, I was very small, and I had to take care of my youngest brother, who was kind of fatty.、Mm-hmm. And the only way for me to get him to sleep was basically carrying him on my back, and I had to carry him hours whenever, like, because whenever I put him down, he would wake up. And in order to stop him crying, I had to carry him on my back all the time. I was very tiny and small; he was big. I had to take care of my siblings, and I had to do a lot of housework. I was I was kind of too short, but I had to do some easy cooking, like making congee, and then I had to send some, you know, sugar water to my mom, who like who worked like two hours away, walk by walk. I mean, so I had to give her some water, otherwise she would faint, because she would like to get some work done. My mother was very hardworking, extremely hardworking. This is the real life. That's why I think we begin to understand why I felt so angry when people tried to beautify the country life. Because I guess I have more say than those who don't have the kind of firsthand information. Because there wasn't a lot of supervision, there were some really close calls. My sister fell off the mountain, very from a very tall place, and she was like, 
you know, covered all in blood. You know, I was climbing the mountain and she would like to follow me and I didn't really, you know, I was five, come on. Yeah, yeah, I don't She was like two to three and then she fell. And I was screaming, interesting. I was screaming and I said, snakes! I didn't know why I responded this way, but you know, that's how I responded. Because, probably because I, I, had, I had a kind of phobia for snakes. So when something like this happened, I just shouted snakes. And then people, you know, would gather. <laughs> and my mother was like, you know, washing my uh, sister up. And at the same time, cursing life or cursing me or something. <laughs> I don't remember specifically. <laughs> And once, a fire broke out in the kitchen, and we kids were basically sleeping in the bedroom. God knows who actually stopped the fire. So basically my mom was like, my mom felt so relieved. She was like, oh, thank God, it must be the ancestors who blessed us. When the fire, you know, spread into the bedroom, the kids, you know, us, would be burned alive. Our tradition was that our ancestors were buried uh, in the back mountain. Mm -hmm. So basically, it felt like they were watching over us all the time. Mm -hmm. So my mother, you know, she was all alone. Most of the time she was alone taking care of us. So she would feel like it must be God or it must be the ancestors who took care of us without us knowing. Uh, what I'm trying to say is basically like living the country is not easy. Her father, who was absent for much of her early childhood, would um, be out in Ujo, like in the city, trying to do some business. For a while, when Jesse was growing up, her father had some mild success and he was able to bring the whole family into the city. This was a big opportunity for Jesse because this was the first time she had ever really started school. My father started this kind of, uh, let me see, kind of factory or business stuff and we were all brought to town for a better education. How's that? Mm, I think it was a kind of opportunity for me because since then I became a kind of top student. Before I went to town, I was kind of wild. I didn't know what schooling meant. But it didn't take me long to be the best in class. Everything I did, I would do it extremely well. I was the best storyteller. I was the, the first prize in the kind of science competition. I was the, you know, the representative of the, the English course or whatever. You know, all kinds of stuff. So basically, when I was in primary school, I felt like I was a genius. <laughs> whatever I did, I could just, you know, get it. It felt very good. Jessie excelled at everything. And that's, of course, because she's really smart. But there's also an underlying motivation. Jessie sees herself as a kid as having this chip on her shoulder. She felt she had to prove herself. And But I guess the first motivation, you know, for me to really work hard is that my father worked very hard to put me into a very good school. And uh, the teacher was kind of contemptuous to me, saying that how parents would have to beg in order to send their kids to the school and stuff. I felt the teacher was talking about me and I was humiliated. And I'm, you know, I determined to be the best. It's okay. kind of instinctive, instinctive sure. impulse, basically, that I don't want people to, you know, to be... Um, humiliated or to be hurt for my sake, then I'll do everything I can to remedy this, to make this up. And then I did it. Back then, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. I just felt, you know, burning in my cheeks when I heard the teacher, you know, talk about my father or possibly my father. I don't even know whether she was talking about my father, but I was very angry back then. I remembered this. Here she was, this kid from the middle of nowhere. Her parents had no education. She felt she had to excel to prove herself. And I uh, also joined a kind of a comp Chinese composition competition. I, and I won second prize. And I got a collection of world classics as my prize. Wow. And it was the beginning of my literature journey. 
through her aptitude, she came to love literature. And obviously, she's very well read. So basically, I read a lot of works. I couldn't understand those stuff back then, I guess. I was only like 10 or 11. I mean, like, these are written in Chinese? They're in Chinese, but they're like world classics. And when I stepped in college, I majored in literature. I did a lot of reading as well in English. And I really began to, you know, feel connected to the things I've read throughout my whole life. Yeah, actually, can I ask you about the school system? Do you respect the school system in China or do you not respect the school system? I think it's kind of a love-hate relationship. Personally, I'm basic. You can say that I'm a benefactor of the system. Right. Because I made it and I, I came out. Uh, through my schooling, I should say, I was the lucky one because I was always seen as the good student. I was always labeled as the good student, loved by all the teachers. So life for me, or schooling for me, was very easy. And it was not very easy for me to imagine the life of a bad student like my siblings. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they had hard times. I'm not saying that my all my siblings were kind of failures. What I'm saying basically that there were hard times for them. And I didn't, could, I didn't quite get it right. back then. In the backdrop of all of her aptitude, the force that both propelled her to succeed and gave her a lot of anxiety and sorrow was her father and her father's inability to provide for their family. See, Jesse's dad would spend their family's money really frivolously. He hoped to curry favor with big business folks in Ojo, but they didn't take him very seriously and they abused his kindness. But my father had very bad habits of, you know, um, hanging out with friends, overspending on unnecessary stuff, gambling. drinking, not gambling, but drinking, uh, showing off, you know, taking the bills and stuff, basically just to make himself look good and stuff, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he, he had a very bad habit. And he had another bad habit of making people feel like he had trust in him. How can I put it this way? What about this way? Uh, you have read Greg Gatsby, right? Gatsby is the kind of person who makes you feel like whatever happens to you, he'll be there with you. He would like to make people feel that he trusts people. So he would put all the advantages in the hands of other people instead of himself. When he came to Shanghai with a million, he actually deposited the money in his friend's account who actually took all the money away and disappeared. So we were deep in debts after that. I guess there are some fatal flaws to my father's character. He always dreams of something big, which he's not capable of. And he believes in all kinds of bureaucracy rules, like buying stuff in, buying advantages and stuff, handing out with the so-called big bosses and stuff so that they would actually give him some advantages. It turns out that he just, you know, bought them millions of free dinners without getting anything in return. So when I was talking to Jesse, I knew that her father's failure to provide certainly hurt her family. But she sort of spoke about this dispassionately. There was more hurt there, and I prodded a little bit. You talked about your father, how he sort of obfuscated or like, you know, was away so much, but you didn't really know why. That feels like there might be I do know there. why. Okay. I just don't feel comfortable talking about it because I felt like it was kind of childhood trauma. Okay, my mother was very unhappy about my father for his infidelity. Mm. Once my mother brought me with her to look for my father in the whorehouse. Yes. Mm. I would like to say it's kind of a family stigma. Mm. It's kind of, do you understand me? It's kind of shame. I don't want to call, you know, recall. Then I wrote a short story about this. 
-hmm. I put this into my you know writing. Now, now when I look back, I feel like yeah, I mean,、um, there are a lot of horrible things in life, even worse than the things I read in books. <laughs> And interestingly, those things happened to me. So the only way for me to really release such you know trauma or hurt is basically by turning the stuff into a kind of、um, film or kind of story. That seems kind of unrelated to me. I mean, I step back as an observer to reflect back on the stuff, as if the thing I've experienced is not really me, or it's a younger me, and it's now already dead. That's the only way for me to basically, you know, shake off this kind of、um, acute sense of shame. Yeah, people in your life lie to you. Even very intimate ones, very close ones, they lie to you for different reasons. A lot of times, selfish reasons, and I hate lies, whatever in whatever form. I prefer, you know, people to tell me the truth, even though very bloody truth. I I don't care so long as the things you tell me are truth. Fine, I can face them, and I have the courage. I've experienced so much in my life. I feel like I can basically face any kind of reality, any kind of truth in my life. I just hate liars, because my father was a liar, my ex-husband was a liar. And I met so many liars in my life, and so happened that some of them were very important to very important people to me in my life. People deal with trauma in different ways. Jessie took her trauma and wrote a story. She distanced herself from it in this way. It was from these really difficult experiences, Jessie forged a stronger sense of self. She determined to rise above the shame. Of her father, whether it's poverty that shapes me this way, or whether it's genes, I'm not sure, or whether it's my life experiences, I, I'm not sure about that, or maybe it's the books I've read. For example, like、uh, my favorite book is Dream of Red Mansions. I, I I'm not sure whether I told you about this. Yeah, there's this heroine,、uh, Lin Daiyu, okay, who is extremely gifted, extremely sensitive. She is a poet. So there are two lines from from.、Uh, Her poetry that goes this way. I can, you know,、uh, speak the Chinese first for you. Okay, go. Basically, the English meaning is that、um, if you're born clean and pure, then you probably don't want to fall into dirt. So that's my principle for life, I guess. But I guess the main point is that I don't want to reduce myself to things that I can't. You know, esteem myself to do. That's the point. Because in her circumstance, like everyone in her life is like you know very good at tricks. You know, stabbing people from behind, lying, stealing. You know, tricking others. Like you know, doing a lot of horrible things. But she is the one who refuses to comply with such things, and she's the person who you know remains the the the, the girl she was. Because we we Chinese really attach a lot of importance to a kind of plant called lotus, you know that? Yeah. Yeah, lotus. Because we feel like lotus grows out of the dirt. You come from the dirt, but you grow into a flower. Doesn't really matter where you come from. Doesn't really matter whether you are on top of the mountain or just in a crevice, struggling for life, waiting for the raindrop or the first sunshine, whatever. It doesn't really matter how hard. The circumstance may be. What really matters is you need to maintain your spirit.
With Jessie's good grades, she was bound to go to a good school. She took the Gaokao, got a good score, and ended up getting into Shanghai Foreign Language University, a really good school. For someone whose life was so hard at this point, this was like a really big step up for her. And she was the first in her family to gain any sort of education. Did you see school as like a way to get out of Ajo or? Um, let me see. I never thought about the question until I thought about which school I would like to go to. For college. Exactly. I never thought about that. You know, I just follow the path because it's the path for everyone in my in my school. <laughs> it's the why path you, for. Why did you believe that? I mean, I, I mean, I understand why it's easy to believe that. It's like your whole society tells you that. No, no, no. It's not that every the whole, everyone in society tells me so. It's basically that that's the best way. I knew it. You knew it. I knew it, because my family was struggling. Yeah. My father was not making money, and we owed money to almost everyone in life. Right. And then. We had to move from one place to another because we couldn't afford the rents. Life was difficult, so even though I didn't know it consciously, I, I guess subconsciously I knew it. It was my only way out. Uh, when it was time for me to decide which school to go to, I thought about Shanghai and Beijing, and then because、uh, I was extremely good at language learning, my English was the best in class, probably in school as well. So I felt like I had this genius for language learning. I would only like to do、um, English. On the show, with people we've talked to previously, there's been this sort of narrative of education that it's like a automatic pathway to success in a material way. I've kind of told this narrative that like you get into a school and your problems are solved. You're like set on the right path to a good life, but that's some privileged bullshit. China, like anywhere else, isn't a meritocracy where you're, if you're smart, you just automatically succeed. College was so difficult for Jesse. Not because she didn't excel, but because she fundamentally didn't fit in.、Um, I guess the major issue is about my education. And after I got into university, I did receive a lot of unfair treatment from, you know, the, the classmates around me.、Mm. They, they, most of them came from very rich families. They didn't have to worry about money. I was the only one who had to struggle financially because I was on the student loan, the maximum. I usually felt like there was this kind of burden on my shoulders. While all my classmates could just enjoy their life, talking about going abroad or talking about buying some new clothes or stuff, and I was the only one feeling that I had a duty to my family. If I overspent or if I squander money on some stuff, I would feel like my family were still struggling. Do you understand what I mean?、Yeah. So my life back then was kind of miserable mentally and emotionally. And especially when some classmates would say, "Well, what made, what brought you here? You, sh- you don't belong here." When I heard this, I didn't even know how to respond to it because I was kind of socially blunt. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know how to respond. If now I could actually travel back, then you know, to to the time, to the moment when when my best friend told me that I didn't belong, I would just tell her that. Stop. <laughs> For Jessie, the thing about college was she was suddenly exposed to the big city life and exposed to people. Who knew little and cared little for anything outside of their upper-class Shanghai bubble? Jesse was lost in the shuffle. I didn't really, you know, officially and emotionally establish very intimate relationships with my friends in high school and in college. I guess it's just me, my personal issue. Kind of, I, I, I had very acute 
feelings, but I didn't know how to share those feelings with people. I once resorted to a college teacher, to one of my teachers, about my feelings. I was very honest. And then I realized I became a kind of burden to her. And then I stopped going to her office. So basically just kept those feelings to myself. But when I was in college, I was, you know, suffering. It was very, you know, I was suffering from a huge mental crisis because I didn't know how to get along with the world. I even thought about committing suicide. Socially, Jessie really struggled. She didn't really have any social support system in college. And most people just didn't understand why she was so different from them. At the root of the problem, the thing that made her so different, that made her so alienated from her classmates, was that Jessie was constantly worried about money. Because of her father's failures, she had to balance college work, her personal finances, and the finances of her family. It was like a giant leap in my life that I couldn't handle. Too big. The minute I stepped into the college, I began to understand that from now on, I had to really take care of myself. I did two or three tutoring jobs in order to make enough money to support myself. And I also got a loan about my living expenses, but that part of money I would always send home. Which means I had to make money for myself, literally, to support me. Which also means, after I stepped into college, I was the one supporting the family. My father was, whatever, a lot of things happened to him and he just, if he could bring home some money, thank God, but most of the time he didn't. The lowest point culminated in her sophomore year over Chinese New Year holiday. She got an urgent call from her father to bring home 6,000 renminbi. So just now I mentioned suicide, right? Uh, One spring festival, I, I got home. And my father got sick in bed. And there were several gangsters in my home, you know, demanding money back or something. Basically, it's it's the common practice now in my hometown. People would actually use the violent ways (laughs) to get things done. So they came to my home, you know, just a few days before the spring festival to get the money. And I was at home with my sick dad, with my youngest brother, facing five to six you know, big, ferocious, you know, big guys. And I told them that I majored in law. And I shouted that if they laid a finger on my father, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get a cent from me. Then they left, like magic. I lied, but it worked. <laughs> I was suicidal because I really needed money back then, before the spring festival, to pay the gangsters. Jessie ended up having to take a loan out from her godmother who worked in the school library. That way she could pay back these gangsters that her dad had got involved with. And then I began to feel like, okay, this is unfair. Really unfair. Okay. I went to college. All my classmates were having fun. Were, you know, studying as they wanted to because they didn't have to worry. And I had to work very hard. And then I came home to find a huge mess for me to fix. I was... 19, man. What did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. Jessie was cracking under the pressure of having to support her whole world on her shoulders. It led her to feel suicidal. I think this is really her Mulan moment. All those years before, as a small child, her father called her Mulan because she was just this tough girl. 
The irony, of course, is that unable to fulfill his filial duty to his family, his daughter had to step up and fill in in his absence. Jessie is really hard on herself, and she takes on a lot. In the midst of this crisis, taking care of far more than any 19-year-old should have to, some things just slipped by. Her brother, the youngest one, the same brother she carried on her back as a small child so that he would fall asleep, slipped between the cracks. With all of her other siblings, she encouraged them to continue with school, even though they didn't do so well. But with her youngest brother, she was just too far away and too tired. She wasn't there for him in this very crucial time in his life. And that crushes her still to this day. Because my youngest brother didn't go to high school. Right. He, he left home for some work uh, in Guangzhou at the age of 16, something like that. Uh, I didn't know why I didn't, you know, push him to, for high school. I didn't, I, I can't remember specifically. Maybe I was like, I, I think I was a sophomore. I was financially struggling as well. Um, my youngest brother is the smartest one of the family, the four of us. And he can pick up things very quickly. My brother probably, my brother John, okay, probably is not the kind of book smart kid. He's more of the mechanical. So it turned out that he, you know, uh, headed for Guangzhou after his 16th birthday. It was really, really a sad story. He didn't, he was a kid, yeah. okay? And the, fa the boss didn't really treat him very well. So when in hard times, he would actually burn himself, burn his arms with cigarettes. And nobody knew about that. So when he showed the scars to me, I was like crying. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it was very hard. Then after I graduated from college, I brought him to Shanghai and I sent him to the kind of um, cooking lessons so that he would be a cook one day. And indeed, I didn't know that being a cook was even harder, actually. He had to work many, like 12, 12 to 13 hours, I guess. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. I probably need to be responsible for this. But I'm not sure about that. Mm. If everyone needs to have a fate, I don't think I can be in charge of his fate. So college was like a nightmare for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, I spent two years thinking about the meaning of my life. And then uh, when it was the third year, I began to realize that I wasted away two years. I didn't have a lot of time, so I started to read enormously. For Jessie, college was just the hardest part of her life. For some, college is like just taking refuge in the fact that you've sort of made it. You got in. You make social connections there that will define the rest of your life, and you get to have a little bit of fun. But for Jesse, there was no collegial entitlement at all. The only respite from all of the chaos of her life was the learning itself. She took it seriously and took her books seriously. 
So she took the lessons to heart because they gave her meaning. And my favorite philosopher is Pascal mm, okay. in this course, mm -hmm. who basically says that human beings are weak reeds. Even a drop of water or anything in the universe could, could actually destroy us without even knowing. But that's what makes human beings nobler than the universe. Because we know we are being destroyed by the universe, but the universe doesn't know. Also, that brings me to Camus, Sisyphus. Sisyphus chose to push the stone, push the huge boulder like to the top of the mountain. That's right. And the boulder will come down anyway, but he, he chooses to do it. That's what makes him a hero. Through her financial problems with her father and through the alienation of being so odd to her fellow classmates in college, Jessie was really lonely and really vulnerable. It was right around this time that she met someone, the wrong person. Tell me about your ex-husband. Where, where is he from? Shanghai. Hmm. He's a local Shanghainese. He was staff in the library. We just met and then, you know, there was this chemistry throughout my college life. Four years, I was kind of socially blunt and I didn't really have any real friends. I mean, in the real sense, someone that could, that knew what my problems were. Back then, nobody knew. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? The teachers didn't. Okay, my friends didn't, my classmates didn't, my family didn't. I couldn't tell anyone. So basically, it was just me, you know, not knowing what to do. And there was this guy who was very nice to me. And I thought it was, everyone told me he was not a very good match because maybe he was not that smart. Maybe he didn't make a lot of money and he didn't have very good education. And especially my godmother who said that I should find someone who doesn't have to be very rich, but at least kind of financially secure so that when I need it, he could help me out. I didn't listen to her. And I, it was a big mistake actually, because I was too dignified to feel that I had to marry someone for money. It wasn't just that he wasn't a good match on paper. This was another man in Jesse's life that disappointed her at a key moment. I was dismissed. I lost my job when I was still in pregnancy. No, when I was still feeding my baby, nursing my baby. Because my boss ran away, something like that. Big scandal in Shanghai. And then I, I just lost my job. And my ex-husband couldn't make a lot of money. So I was kind of financially stranded. I, I was desperate for money. Mm -hmm. I looked for another job, New Oriental. You know, very... Big, the biggest training school in China. Um, I heard I went there because I heard it paid very well. <laughs> I needed money desperately, and then I went there. I worked very hard. I told you I was very dignified, and I had a baby. My ex-husband was not taking care of her. He didn't know how, and he didn't have you know the kind of uh, interest. He was drifting something. I, I guess he was drifting. He he didn't know what to do with his life either. I think I married him out of sense of obligation. What obligation did you have to him? Because he was nice to me and I felt like I owed him. Mm -hmm. So obligation has always been a kind of a sword for me, hanging over my head. I, yeah, I, I, I married him only because he was very nice to me. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, um, another catalyst for his marriage is that everyone in my life told me no. Mm -hmm. And I would like to stand up against that voice. And I even told myself that if this was a mistake, I would like the mistake to be my own. But anyway, I, I made the mistake and I corrected it. And I'll look back, I don't regret. Because yeah. for me, I come from a very humble background, you know, fifth tier city. 
Okay, so in order to survive in Shanghai, I had to work super hard, and I was born very dignified. I would like to be the best, but my ex-husband was kind of happy with where he was. Even though he tried, he attempted, you know, creating his own business and ended in vain. So it's just a mismatch. And then he turned to someone who could actually give him a sense of achievement or accomplishment. Someone who was selling tea in Shanghai, who was not divorced, who was still married. So who would actually flatter him, making him feel like a man or something like that? So I don't blame him for that. Because right now, when I look back, I hated him very much. You know, the first year, and now it's been ten years. Come on, I begin to see. Things more clearly. At least to me, I begin to see things more clearly. I feel like it's just a mismatch. I guess I know what I am.、Mm. I know what I am from the reading. That's why reading is very important for me.、Mm. I, 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 another thing. I just now mentioned that being a teacher is very important as well because after I became a teacher, I begin to really reflect upon what I am. I begin to really look for the truths that are important for me, like what kind of person I would like to be and what kind of person I used to be. So when I reflect back on the relationship with my ex-husband, it's like it's not my fault that I worked hard and he didn't. So Jesse's ex-husband lied to her and couldn't get himself together. She hated him for that in the past, but now she just shrugs it off. The same year that she got divorced, she also helped her father pay off his remaining debts, and then she wrote both of them out of her life. She didn't want to be Mulan anymore. She didn't want to fight battles on behalf of exploitative men. Over the years, Jessie has helped move her mom and her brothers to Shanghai, and they all live together with Jessie and her daughter. Jessie's in a really good place now, and she feels very supported in such a full house. Another thing is basically probably that I have a very big and supporting family. Okay, whenever something happens, I know they'll be there for me. So, like I said at the beginning, Jessie gave a presentation about gender for our Curious Minds group. She had told her family about it, and the way that her family supported her through the preparation for this presentation, I think, is really indicative of the kind of loving home she's created. You know this, you know, presentation thing last week about these gender roles. I had only one day, to be more specific, one afternoon <laughs> to really take care of this whole thing. <laughs> I did a lot of research. I listened to two lectures and stuff, and then I, my mother came in to, to give me some fruit, and I told my mom that, "Mom, I'm not ready." And my mom says something very funny. She never says something like this to me in my whole life. She said, "Hey, daughter, other things you don't have to worry. You don't even have to do. You can be a very bad housekeeper. <laughs> you can be, even be a very bad mother, but..." Your work, your study—you have to do them well. I'm like, <laughs> for the first time in my life, my mother gave me a lesson,、yeah. and this lesson is about courage and confidence.、Yeah. And then my my brother at the dinner told me that, hey, don't worry, you're quick, you're witty, you you can actually come up with stuff when when you are giving the presentation, as if it's a matter of truth, <laughs> a matter of fact. The next morning, I woke up. The first thing my daughter asked me about the presentation was, "Hey, mom, did you do a good job?" Well, it was okay. It was okay. Mom, you must have done a very good job because you had everyone's support in the family. And she was like, "Hey," stuff like this. Do you understand I me? Mean? Yeah. So a lot of times, very small things in my family actually, you know, give me a lot of support. 
and courage. Famous one during World War One poster. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever the society or the world needs women, women are pushed out of their families. You know, to serve in the army, to drive lorries. You know, to to basically serve the injured soldiers. Whenever they're not needed, they're pushed back into the family. That's what we. The most important person in her life is her daughter, who she loves infinitely. But for Jesse, having a daughter can be really difficult. Based on Jesse's own past and the society which she lives in, she has very complicated feelings about being the mother of a daughter. Actually, when I was pregnant, I'd always wanted to have a son instead of a girl. Actually, the reason was very simple. I don't think, I, I still don't think, I, I didn't think, and I still don't think Shanghai is a very good place to, you know, raise a girl. Because there are so many voices in your life telling you what you should do. Like in Shanghai, there are so many people who will tell you that it's very important to have money. It's very important to marry some, someone rich. It's very important to wear Gucci, LV, to carry the, you know, materialistic stuff to show you're successful, to show you're pretty enough, to show that someone would like to spend money on you so that you can be proud. No, if it's a son, maybe he won't care so much about his appearances. Maybe he won't think about marrying himself off to a rich lady or something like that. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. So you see, that's my point. So I think that partly answers the question. It, it is very hard to be a girl and a woman in China because there are so many people, so many voices from the media, from people in your life who would like to impose their ideas on you. I hope my girls have a soul. I hope they don't have to, you know, give up something important to comply with the mediocrities. If they want money, they can make it. If they want a kind of life, they can make it happen. It's not up to someone to decide what they want. I hope they can be granted with such freedom. Whenever I try to tell my daughter my history, my past, my daughter will say, well, mom, we're, diff- we're living in different ages now, which actually make me ang- makes me angry. Because I do understand it, but I feel like human beings are capable of learning from the past. You can't use this as an excuse of saying basically we come from different ages. Really? She has the kind of childhood I could only dream about. Really? She lives with a huge family where everyone loves her. Yeah. There's this absent father, but she has two uncles who are always there for her. And she has this auntie who loves her as well. And she has this grandma who cooks her breakfast every day. She gets, she has a super mom like me. She's the happiest kid I could ever, I could ever imagine. Come on. She's my daughter. I don't have to worry about her. She will take care of herself. I don't, I don't have, you know, very fixed predictions about my life. And I warn my daughter about her life as well. Basically, I, I would like her to take good advantage of the chances and opportunities that she's blessed with. I think throughout Jesse's story, I've neglected an important person in Jesse's life. The other most important relationship in her life is her relationship with her mother. A lot of Jesse's heroes are literary, and books have taught her a lot of the lessons that she's gained throughout her life. But I think her mom has been at the core of all of this. 
who's always given her love and support and wisdom, even in the hardest of times during their life. She went to school. She stayed in school for only 13 days. She didn't even know how to write her own name. She, she is probably kind of ashamed of that, but she's the smartest woman I've ever met. Why do you say that? Because she, she has taught me a lot of important lessons in my life. You know, not the bookish knowledge, but kind of wisdom, life wisdom. Uh, like yesterday, I was talking with my friend about this incident in my life when I was, uh, I grew up watching TV shows, soap operas, whatever TV shows. And then uh, once I was watching TV show, like 10 or 11 p.m., very late at night, through the narrow ajar door of my mother's bedroom, <laughs> I didn't know what happened. But my mother sensed something and she said, hey, were you there? And I instantly jumped into my bed and covered my bed with my sheets. <laughs> and then my mother put over, you know, the sheets to find me smiling. <laughs> you know what she did next? Huh? No. She said, okay, come to my bed and watch together with me. <laughs> so from this, I learned plasticity is very important for a mother. I can't just use the kind of dichotomy to, to basically teach my daughter say this is good this is bad and then there's this very clear line between good and bad right and wrong because you know sometimes i have to blur the line i have to give her time to grow up you've been listening to strangers in china So just to let you know, this is the last episode of our season. These episodes take a lot of time, and I just need some more time and space to get more interviews and reporting done. I started this podcast almost exactly a year ago uh, with Cherie, and I just can't believe how it's grown and how it's changed over this time. And like, I don't know, I've just like learned so much through this process. It's been amazing. I want to thank all the listeners and supporters. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback and love for the work that I put a lot of time into. And uh, I really appreciate that. If you really love what we're doing here um, and you love listening to this show, make sure that you support us on social media. Um, I really want this to be seen by all sorts of people. Um, and you sharing our episodes or just sharing about our podcast on social media makes a really big difference. Uh, if you want to share about this show, make sure you add us on Twitter at Stranger in China or on Instagram at Strangers in China. You can also hit us up on Facebook at Strangers in China. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have any questions or anything like that, send us an email at Strangers in China official at gmail.com. Uh, this is very important. This is very important. Um, we're looking for a new and hopefully permanent co-host of this show. I recorded this episode in the in quarantine from the coronavirus in my home. So there wasn't a lot of hope for me getting a, a co-host for this one. But episodes like this need more perspectives than like my white man perspective um so i need more of a team here um so please 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 if you or someone you know is interested in our show 
send us a resume, send us an email at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. If you want to join the team here as like a co-host or if you want to get your hands on any other sort of production, just let us know. Or if you have a story that you think would be great for us, just let us know. There aren't really any specific requirements other than like a deep respect for Chinese culture. And I don't know, a plucky attitude. (laughs) Honestly, people ask me like, you know, what, you know, what's the secret? Like, you know, how do you make a good production or whatever in a podcast? It's just like a lot of hard work. It's just sitting down and doing a lot of hard and sometimes very monotonous work. So we just need more people who are passionate about this. If you're passionate about this, please send us a resume. And again, that's at strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. Um, anyway, much love to everybody. Stay healthy. New episodes will be out this fall. And we have some really, really great stories that we're like following up with and covering. So stay tuned. Strangers in China is a member of the Seneca Network, brought to you by SubChina. This episode was mastered by Kaiser Cool. This episode was produced by me, Clay. Go to our podcast page at subchina.com to see all the notes about the production and the research used for this episode. You can also link to any of the music that was used in this episode as well. Our theme song is Analytical Skeletons by Cesus. Other music in this episode was by Purple Cat, Jack Major, Terry Skills, Artist Unknown 2, Cesus, Lofi, Sapphiros, Uh, I want to thank my love, Elizabeth, for her support through this entire year. I know she doesn't really listen to this podcast. She says she does, but I know she doesn't really. Um, So she won't know I'm saying this, but I really couldn't have done any of this without her. Um, And I just want to thank her for putting up with me, especially in this last month or so of quarantine that we've been going through.